John chapter 5. And before I read, let me remind you that there is in your bulletin these green Trinity Connect cards. I know many of you are new to the church, and we are so glad that you're here. And many of you have been members since the earliest shepherd you. And so if all of you would please fill that green Trinity Connect card out, that would be wonderful. The passage upon which the teaching is based today is in John chapter 5, beginning at verse 33 and going down to verse 47. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 5, 31 through 47. The context is Jesus in the midst of his longest speech, whereby he describes to the Pharisees, the churchgoers, people like you and me, who he is. This is the largest autobiographical spot in all the Gospels where Jesus explains who he is. And so please give your attention to it as we read. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they who bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This passage turns the tables on us. We find Jesus defending himself before the Pharisees right after he had healed a man on the Sabbath. But Jesus was criticized and critiqued and judged, not because he healed a man on the Sabbath, which was allowed according to the Torah, the Old Testament, but because Jesus allowed this man to carry his mat, which was not allowed on the Sabbath. You could wear things on the Sabbath, but you couldn't carry things on the Sabbath. So if this man had tied a string on the mat and slung it over his shoulder, he could call it a piece of clothing and he'd be good to go. 
But he hung on to it. He carried his mat. And because he broke the rules that the Pharisees had made for what you could and could not do on the Sabbath, they grilled him. They metaphorically crucified him with their looks and their words. And ultimately, their annoyance of Jesus turns to fierce hatred of Jesus, and they literally crucify him, as you know. But Jesus knows that talk is cheap. And so in verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus preempts their objection that you can say whatever you want to about yourself. I, I know you think that. I know that you don't believe me because I have everything to lose if I don't talk a good game. So then Jesus calls in witnesses to defend himself, just like the Jews would expect him to do, because Deuteronomy 19.15 says whenever you have an issue, you call in two or three witnesses. And Jesus applies that later in Matthew chapter 18, and Paul applies that later to the churches as well. And so Jesus calls in four witnesses, not two, not three. Jesus calls in four. The first one he calls in is John the Baptist. Verse 33. Then Jesus' own works are self-authenticating. Verse 36. Then his father. Verse 39. And then the scriptures, and particularly the law of Moses. Verse 45. Do you see it? And it makes sense, right, for Jesus to call these witnesses because you think about the American jurisprudence system. The legal system. It works the same way. I was home this weekend for a graduation in our family, and um, it reminded me that when I was growing up, down the street from my, my family um, was a psychologist. His name was Phil McGraw, and Phil one time uh, played football at the University of Tulsa. He followed his father to play football at TU, and he came back to work with his dad in Wichita Falls, my hometown. And back then, we just know, we knew him as Phil, right? Now, of course, we know him as Dr. Phil. And Dr. Phil had a medical, had a, a psychology practice in town, and he began to get interested in um, jury consultation. And so he moved out to Amarillo, and he's in Amarillo, this psychologist who played football at TU and, and is doing his thing. And Oprah Winfrey in the late 90s, you may remember this, was sued for liable because she talked about mad cow disease in one of her episodes in a way that the beef industry took issue with, and they sued her. And so Oprah Winfrey, being sued out of Amarillo, finds herself with all these highfalutin lawyers in West Texas in a culture she did not know, facing fierce hatred from a cattle industry with which she was not familiar, and so she told all of these lawyers, you go find the best local guy you can find, and you get him on our team. And so they went out and they hired Phil McGraw. And Phil McGraw helped them pick jurors for the case. And Oprah paid him whatever the contract was. It was a very reasonable sum of money for a Vordire expert, as Phil McGraw was. And she said to him, by the way, if I win this case, I will make you famous. And Oprah Winfrey, of course, held up her end of the bargain, right? And so now Dr. Phil is a household name. But Dr. Phil knew that you have to call in the right witnesses to defend Oprah against. And Jesus does the same thing, except Jesus doesn't need a jury consultant. Jesus has everybody he needs, and they all are willing to testify to him because they all testify to him. And so he starts with, with John, 
And he gives us the witnesses, and he gives us the verdict. First, he starts with John. Then he goes to his works. Then he goes to his father. Then he goes to the scriptures. First with John, his witnesses. The first stories that John, the, the writer of the gospel, John, ever starts with are the stories of John the Baptist. His role was identified to be a witness. Chapter 1, verse 7. He uttered the first public testimony about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 29 of chapter 1. And so by Jesus bringing John into the story, he's trying to help the Pharisees connect that it was John the Baptist whom they sought advice about. They went out to John the Baptist and said, tell us about this guy. Who is he? And John said, I am not the light, but there is one who is coming who is the light. And they gave their full attention to John the Baptist for a while. And verse 35 says, eventually it had no lasting effect and their hearts again were hardened. And then Jesus says, not only John the Baptist, but he goes from a human testimony to the display of his works, right? Talk is cheap. Show me your deeds. And so Jesus says, my works testify to my deity. Everything that I've done should show you that I am the one. Listen, tell, you go and you tell people that the blind have received sight, the lame have walked, and the deaf are hearing. Like this is, I'm the fulfillment of all that the prophets queued up for your Messiah. I am he. We were driving home last night down the turnpike, and there's a section of the turnpike, some of you may know, that they've put LED lights on. And it's amazing when you drive into the, from the darkness into that area with the LED lights, how much safer you feel on that highway because you feel the whole highway is lit up. And it's like Jesus' works are like LED lights in the highways and byways of our life to say, here he is. I'm the safest place you can travel. Uh, it's me. And all of his works are like shining spotlights. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Do you see it? but they didn't. And this third witness is interesting to me because you would think that Jesus would call his father to be either the first witness or the last witness, the strongest places you would put witnesses. But Jesus puts his father third, which is ironic because these Pharisees, of course, had the highest esteem they possibly could for Yahweh. They couldn't even say his name. And so Jesus calls his father Third, and he says, listen. Deuteronomy 10 says, what does the Lord your God have asked of you? But to love the Lord your God, to walk on all of his ways, to serve him, to keep his commands and decrees that he's given you this day for your own good. And yet, even though the Jews should have held the Father, as the strongest witness, they find even the Father's witness hard to believe for two reasons. Number one, they, um, Jesus says that they don't have any kind of direct contact with God. It says in verse 37, if you lower your eyes down to the text, it says, and the Father who sent me has borne witness about me, but his voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen. We can't see God. How do we believe them? And these people who were known across the world as believing in the one true God, 
Jesus calls them out and says, you have a broken relationship with that one true God and you have a hard time even believing what he says about me. Not only have they not heard his voice, but Jesus says that the problem is that his word does not abide in you. It doesn't dwell in you. In other words, Jesus in verse 38 turns the tables on the Pharisees. We think that the Pharisees are taking Jesus to court. But Jesus is actually saying, brothers, I am taking you to court because his word does not abide in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You don't believe me. The fourth witness Jesus gives is the witness of Scripture itself. And this is hard for us to understand, but Scripture for the Jews was the foundation of everything that they believed, particularly the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And it was not that they didn't read the Bible, it's that they didn't interpret it right. Everybody can read the Bible. One of my old seminary professors used to say, Bible, Bible, Bible. Everybody can have a date with the Bible, but they abuse it. They mistreat it, and then they break up with it. God's word, friends, is not only to be read, but it's also to be read rightly. And when you read it rightly, you see that Jesus is in every page. That the more and more you read the Bible, the less and less you see it says. It connects you to a grand story of redemption. And you see that story played out all throughout the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, all the way through. And yet, though they studied Scripture, they didn't see Christ. And his entire ministry was the fulfillment of, of Old Testament Scripture. And these experts in the law missed it. Do you? How many times do you read God's Word and you find it dry and boring and hard to follow because you've disconnected it from the love letter that it is of your Savior to you and this grand story of how He's redeeming you to four steps of how to get through a rough week? And the only way to apply the gospel is always through the grand scope of redemption that the Lord Christ has come in his life, death, and resurrection to redeem us, but not only us, but all creation in the life, death, and resurrection of his finished work for us. And when you begin to understand that the Bible is not just a mere list of laws to read, but it's a lens, it's a worldview through which you understand everything else about your life, then the laws begin to make sense. Then the commands begin to be not duty, but a choice, as we often sing. They become beautiful to us. And it's difficult to know exactly where Jesus, um, what scriptures Jesus has in mind here. But the early Christians based their preaching almost entirely upon Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures. And one of the early um, elements of the apostles' preaching was the fulfillment of Jesus coming to be everything that the Old Testament pointed to. Acts 10.43 is a good example of that. Luke provides examples of this type of training when Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. Friends, what I'm saying is that the whole of Scripture is a testimony to the finished work of Christ. And if you don't begin to understand that, then the Bible is just going to feel rote and wooden and hard, and it's not going to be something that you recognize as precious to you. But when you do see it that way, it comes alive in ways that you never anticipated. 
Matthew offers 13 different fulfillment texts in his gospel where Jesus completes all that which the Old Testament points. And we know that the early Christians developed summary lists of Old Testament texts that specifically were fulfilled by Christ. These four witnesses, John, Jesus' own works, his Father in heaven, and the Scriptures, turn the tables on the Pharisees Whereas Jesus is not the one who is defending himself, now Jesus finds himself toward the Pharisees being the one who's actually calling them to court. And he pronounces the verdict beginning here at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Abraham gave them their national pride, but Moses taught them how to live. He was their patron saint. And they would not doubt Moses. He was their cultural authority. And Moses was their intercessor before the Father. Their great intercessor. And Jesus is saying, Moses' intercessory work only pointed to me. I am the true and greater Moses. And for that, Jesus was charged with treason and blasphemy. That he would be so arrogant as to say that he would intercede before Israel, before his father. The Jews expected Moses to be their supporter and to plead their case on their behalf. And Jesus announces to them that, you know what, you have a shoddy lawyer because he's only condemning you. There was a man I heard this week who went to McDonald's. You may have heard this story. And he walked into McDonald's and he was just full of shame as he was waiting in line because there was this amazing woman at the counter who was incredibly kind and jovial and just magnetic in her personality. And there's only one problem for him. That he was raised to hate people who were African American. And she herself was African American. And on his hand, he had a swastika tattooed on his middle finger so that when he punched people in the face, it'd be the last thing that they saw. So he walks up to the counter, racist, prejudiced, and he says, I was in the line at McDonald's and I was overcome with shame and I put my hand in my pocket because I didn't want her to see it. And he's fumbling with his change and he, he showed his hand accidentally and she... <laughs> She so wisely just said, what is that on your finger? And like all the people at McDonald's heard it. What is on your finger? And he said, I towered over this woman about two feet. But I felt at that moment like six inches tall. And it's like Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, what is that on your finger? Why are you using Moses to be the means of your salvation when I'm the fulfillment of all that Moses talked about? But instead of being full of shame, they try to punch Jesus in the nose so that the last thing Jesus will ever see is the law. And Jesus says it's that law that actually condemns you. The joke is on you, friends. It's not on me. 
Jesus is saying the same thing to, the, to us that he's saying to the Pharisees. I know you run to the law. I know that Jesus isn't what you expected. I know that the, the good life that you imagined for your, yourself may not be the, the life that Jesus has allowed you to lead these days. But he is the satisfaction of your deepest longings and desires. Who are you? Where are you? What's wrong with the world? How does it get fixed? All of those questions are answered in Christ. Do you see it? Do you know it? John wants us to see this. Jesus could call four witnesses. Who would they be in your life? If Jesus were talking to you, defending his deity before you, who would you call to be the four witnesses for you? Be an interesting exercise to try this week. Who would be the, the four people that I would believe if I didn't believe God? Who would be the four people I would believe? And Jesus is calling those four people into the courtroom because he wants you to see that even those four people or those four things or those four ideals or those four dreams, they will run themselves out. And you will, will be left at the end of the day in the courtroom with just you and Jesus. And you have to decide what you're going to think and believe and do in his presence. There are a lot of really, really good commencement speeches this time of year. And I like to watch some of them. John Krasinski's uh, speech at Brown is one of my favorites. But, but my favorite was the one that Robert F. Smith gave at Morehouse College. Robert F. Smith, many of you, you know, may know that. He's one of the wealthiest um, people in America. Um, Robert F. Smith... Uh, is, uh, um, he's the CEO and the president of a very, very large hedge fund. And so he speaks at Morehouse College, which is a historically black college in Atlanta, Georgia. And he's speaking, and this is what he says. In the midst of his speech, he pauses and he says, on behalf of the eight generations of my family who have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus, he says. He turns to the alumni and he says, now alumni, this is my class. 2019 is my class. And my family is setting up a grant to eliminate every one of their student loans. And you can see the crowd turn from like, you know, faint inattentiveness in the hot Arizona sun to like processing what he just said. And then they begin to like, in their disbelief, begin to actually think, oh, I think he's serious. And then all of a sudden, the quietness of the moment turns to, like, shouts. And then people understand it. And then the whole, whole place just, like, erupts in a standing ovation. And then there are students at Morehouse, 400 male students who graduate from the class. And they're, like, screaming in joy that this man just made a $40 million gift to eliminate every single one of their student loans. It was amazing. It's an amazing moment. You should go watch it on YouTube. It's an amazing moment. And you have 400 graduates who have had their student debt eliminated. And just like the visceral human response to that is just compelling. And if that's true for these 400 graduates who have had their student debt eliminated, how much more for us who the king of the world has said to us, I'm going to eliminate all of your sin, not with a gift of $40 million, but with an infinite gift of my son for you. Oh, I'm beyond. What time is lunch? I mean, if we really understood what it would be, we would be like, oh my gosh, how can worship ever be boring? This is amazing. 
And the Lord has built into our life a rhythm so that we come back to that memory every single week, 52 times a year. Every time we come back to that holy moment where Jesus pronounces over us, on behalf of me and my Father and the Holy Spirit, my family, who have existed for all eternity, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. And not only are we going to wipe away all of your student debt, all of your debt to sin, but we're going to give you white robes of righteousness so that you can be in our presence forever. Wouldn't that be amazing? And these Pharisees, who should have been the very people who got it, were the ones whose hearts were so hard that they never even saw it. They couldn't see it. Because what it says in the Scriptures is because the love of God was not in them. It doesn't say they didn't have enough Bible knowledge. It says because they couldn't believe God loved them. Some of you have the, the largest obstacle is not what you believe about a certain theological issue. The largest obstacle for you to understand the gospel is that you have to allow the Lord to love you like he says he does. And when you begin to get that, oh, it changes everything about your life. Who will you call to defend you? Who will declare your record of righteousness? The law condemns you. Moses condemns you. And the four witnesses that you use to defend yourself before the Father, they will be used to judge you. And it's only by grace that you're able, able to stand in joy before a Father who sings over you with his love. Isn't this the cosmic question of all of the Bible? In Revelation, John, the same writer of this gospel, says, Who will break the seals of man's guilt before God and open the scrolls? How will the story end for our good? Or will it end for our good? In Revelation 5, it's John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no witnesses were able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep aloud because no one was found to open the scroll. And one of the elders said, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And he is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then John looks to see the lion in Judah. And who does he see? He sees a lamb. The lion who's become the lamb for us. The tender, sacrificial Passover lamb. This is our Savior. The one on trial who is actually putting everyone on trial that stands in judgment over him. And the trial that we find ourselves in is the same trial as the Pharisees. The tables have been turned on us. Jesus is the one who judges. Jesus is the one who clears us of guilt if you trust in him. In Revelation 7 it says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and tongue and nation and people standing before the throne and then before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches, branches of peace and rest in their hand. And one of the elders said to me, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said, sir, you know. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst. 
The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them into springs of living water, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus, who you find yourself in that courtroom with after all the witnesses have dissipated, comes around that bench, and he takes upon himself the verdict that his Father pronounces upon you. And he says to you, I'm going to put a little fuel in your bus, and I'm going to free you up so that you're able to live the life I've given you to lead with joy, knowing that your great debt to sin has been forgiven, and I've clothed you with the righteousness of Christ. But the things that you use to judge the legitimacy of Jesus, of the Bible, to justify your own worldview, Just like Jesus used Moses against the Pharisees, Jesus will call them to witness your condemnation if you don't believe in him. Do you? Oh, friends, may we see the beauty of the gospel. To see Jesus is who he says he is in John chapter 5, that he is divine, that he is the one who can heal you. He is the one who breaks through all of our shoddy uh, man-made rules that lead us away from the beauty of the gospel. And he holds the gospel before us and he says, find your rest in me. It will only cost you all of your life, but in giving up yourself, you'll find it in me. Let's pray together.